0: Well, it is quite an honor, privilege, a joy to get to be with you this morning and get to share God's Word with you. I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40, where we'll go to verse 12. And as you're turning there, I will give you greetings from Union. It's been mentioned. I'll I'll give you greetings from my home church, First Baptist in Jackson. And uh, just I'll say a word of thanks to you. This church and its story is a great encouragement to me. You sent us John Pope, who uh, was just a blessing and encouragement to me in class, continues to be as he serves now at a church, serving with my brother. Uh, And you may know that your pastor teaches a youth ministry class for us, and we were trying to get that going. He's the guy I've looked to, to help us design that and to do that. And so, you are blessed, and you are a blessing. So, it's a real privilege to get to be with you and to share with you this morning, And I want to take up Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 31, which in some places would scare people because that's a lot of verses. But I think here you're ready for that many verses. It may not be surprising. So I will, as is my custom, and it may be yours, ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word here from Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 31. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray together. Father, we do gathered here this morning thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us. You've not left us to ourselves We know that not only have we wandered off, but we could not find our way back if you had not spoken, if you had not opened our eyes to see. So we thank you for this gift of your word that you preserved down through the ages and give us the opportunity to gather around this morning. And so we ask that you might speak. We all know that my words will not be worth our time, but yours are worth everything. So we ask you to speak by your spirit through your word and enlarge our views of you, challenge and comfort. Give hope and give life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, this is a great text holding up the greatness of our God. And you have heard, no doubt, some of the echoes of this text, even in the songs that we've sung already. But I want to make sure, as we just drop right down here in the middle of Isaiah, that we have the context, because I think the context speaks to our context as well. When we drop right here into this text, we are, for Isaiah and for the people of Judah, we are in challenging times. They are the southern Kingdom. We won't do an Old Testament survey quiz this morning, but they're the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has just been destroyed. Assyria, the wicked nation, has come in and has laid waste with much destruction and hardship and terror. They've laid waste the the northern kingdom. They've come down into the southern kingdom, but God rescued the southern kingdom and they've gone back home. Isaiah spoke during that time. But now Isaiah has said, guess what? Babylon is coming. You know that country that the news is now talking about in the evening? Okay, they didn't have that exactly. But that you're hearing about and they're, they're mobilizing and they seem to be powerful? Yeah, they are. And they're going to get more so. And they're coming right here and they will not be turned back, but they will destroy this very place. That's not very encouraging. That's where they are. So I think about our setting. No matter what you think politically, the economy is a challenge right now. People I know, probably some people you know, maybe you, are in hard times just to make ends meet right now. Things are challenging. We look around this and there's moral dissolution. There's always been challenge with sin since the garden, but we look around us and some things we thought were at least settled are no longer settled. Christian families are dealing with people turning away. What do we do and how do we respond? There's war. War in Europe threatens to bring things here, brings challenges for us. What do we say? How do we deal with that? And then apart from the things that are in the news, You have your own challenges, troubles, problems, fears, anxieties, inadequacies. Some of us are probably riding high right now, and some of us are riding low. But as people have often said, we're either in the midst of difficulty, coming out of difficulty, or headed into it. That's the reality in this fallen world. And when we're in those kind of situations, when we're really pressed We end up asking ourselves one way or another, how am I going to cope? How am I going to make it? And well-meaning people give us some wrong answers. I want to set up those wrong answers so we can go to a right one. But well-meaning people will come along and sometimes they'll say, they'll point to the circumstances and they'll say, things aren't really as bad as they seem. And sometimes that's a useful word. We can kind of get a little hyper and we can paint things too bad more than they really are and we might need some people to bring us down a little bit. And so sometimes that's useful. But sometimes the brute reality is that things really are as bad as they seem to be. And suggesting they're not is just wishful thinking, and it doesn't really help. Others won't point to circumstances. They point to ourselves. And they'll say, you can do it. And again, sometimes that's helpful because sometimes we need just to be pushed to go ahead and do what we know know we should do, and, and we can handle things. But there are a lot of things we can't handle. And that's the culture's gospel at the moment really is, you can do it. And oftentimes we just know that's not true. We know we are inadequate. And if all we have to look to is the circumstances and self, then we also know we're doomed. We're hopeless, hapless, and helpless. But Isaiah's approach is altogether a thing. He directs our attention away from ourselves and away from our circumstances, and he says to us, behold your God. He knows that if we're limited to human means and human resources, then we have no hope at all. We must have God. And the most important thing about any of us is what we think about God. Now, in a gathering like this, you know that, and you have been instructed but there are all kind of things pulling us away from thinking rightly about God, pulling us towards small views of God, pushing us to look at ourselves. And we need to look away and look at God. J.B. Phillips, a number of years ago, wrote his book, Your God is Too Small. He said at that time that our society bore all the marks of a God-starved society. And I think it's only more true now. So Isaiah is going to point us away from ourselves, look at God. But even when we look to God, I think two common questions come up that Isaiah is going to deal with. We might think, okay, I'm going to look at God, but can God really handle this? Now, you know not to ask that question here, but you might ask it in here. Is God really up to this challenge? Then we might even ask, okay, even if he can handle this, does he really care? Again, you know right answer to that question. But many of us are tempted from time to time to say, well, I, I mean, I know God cares for pastors and God cares for particularly good people, but I, I don't know if he cares about me. Or maybe he used to care about me, but now I'm doubting whether or not he cares for his people. All of these Isaiah addresses. So I want to look at these first several verses, verses 12 to 26, which I've labeled God beyond compare. Because in these verses, there's this breathtaking view of the greatness of God, and it's answering that first question, is God really up to it? You see that Isaiah is pushing us away from ourselves to look at this view of the grandeur of God, and this long section parallels. It says basically this one thing, For the first several verses, 12 to 20, and then it says the same thing again in 21 to 26. So I'm going to put the pieces together. So the first thing I want to point at, verses 12 to 14 and verses 21 to 22 together, pointing us to the greatness of God as creator. Now all of us know that God's the creator. The people here knew that God's the creator, but he's wanting them to pause and look at this afresh. So notice what he says there in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, he has this who all the way through here for a while, and we get it's a rhetorical question. Isaiah is not scratching his head saying, I really don't know. But he's asking, you know who? It's not us. It's the Lord God that he mentioned in the previous verse. So who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Now, the Israelites are land-bound people. They don't do sailing. And so for them particularly, the waters are scary. But we know even from our perspective water covers most of this earth the huge oceans you look and you can't see the end of it but that's true at certain lakes and god says who is it that can hold all the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand that that you can't even see across i hold it right here when i want to or marked off the heavens with a span a span's the length of a hand essentially the heavens that we see and we should be amazed at, even as we sang, and they're so great and grand, and even today with telescopes, and we can see the, the breadth and the width of the galaxy, and the Lord says, yeah, but I won't do. I just measure that with my hand. Or then he says, Who has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Mountains, the symbol of strength, these huge things. And even back home in Tennessee today, Rocky Top is riding kind of (laughs) high. But he says, all of those things, I just weigh them on a balance. Those things that are so huge to you and so impressive to you, the things that you know you can't destroy or take down, I pick them up, weigh them, say, it's about right, and put it back down. This is God pushing back on us to say, recognize afresh who I am. In verse 13, who's measured the spirit of the Lord? or What man shows him his counsel? To measure the spirit, who understands? Who understands God in his deepest being in order to be able to give him advice? You know the answer to that is nobody. This week, a number of you have been called by somebody asking for advice. Hey, this is going on. What should I do? What could I do? Do you have any ideas for me? And that's a good thing. Proverbs tells us that wisdom is found in many counselors. You and I lack wisdom, and so we need to find sources of wisdom. But guess what? God doesn't lack wisdom. He doesn't need sources. None of us are ever going to get an email or a phone call. That we answer and it says, yes, this is the Lord. You know, I'm governing the universe, and I've got a little question. I wonder if you might have an idea about it. Of course not. That doesn't keep us sometimes from trying to think that he needs our advice and giving it to him. Some of you this week not only got calls asking for advice, but you got some people suggesting advice to you and you realize they don't know what they're talking about. This is where we are with God. He has no need of this. His understanding is beyond our understanding. He knows all things. You would agree, I think, when you came in this morning, that God knows all things. But I want to press on you. That's not simply abstractly true. That is absolutely true. Therefore, he knows you. He knows where you are. He knows how to help you. He just may not follow your timeline. God needs advice. From no one. Don't make the limits of your understanding the limits of your faith. That's very easy for us to do. When things are going how we can understand them, we say we trust God. Wow, that's great faith. And then God's way goes a total different way from ours. doesn't make any sense to us. And essentially God is asking, do you really trust me? If we want to limit things to our understanding, do you realize how small that is? I can't even really explain to you why the lights turn on when you turn the switch. Now I can tell you electricity, but yeah, can you explain that? I can't. I'm modern in physics, but I can't really explain that. Our understanding is small. His is great. But look over to verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? He's challenging their understanding here. When he mentions the foundations of the earth and then him sitting above the circle of the earth, this point of creation, look at the things around you. It's as if he says, and can you not tell that there is someone in charge of all of this? If uh, the Lord says, I did not have this understanding, this would not have lasted this long. As the one preacher said, Regarding creation, God took a handful of nothing, turned it into something, hung it on nothing, and told it to stay there. This is the God we're talking about. And then he says there in verse 22, he sits above the circle of the earth, its inhabitants, all the people on earth are like grasshoppers, so small before him. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah will say later in this very book that the earth is the Lord's footstool. He is calling us, behold, your God, the creator. It's the reason why Christians through the years have confessed together, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But not only God as creator, notice in verses 15 to 17, verses 23 to 24, God as the ruler of nations. So verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. Now he's gonna go on to say that they're nothing, uh, empty, and let's just be real clear, he's not saying that human life doesn't matter. These are the nations. These are the ones who are coming against Israel. All the assembled might of the world, like in Psalm 2, when all the assembled nations and their power want to overthrow God's Messiah, and the Lord laughs at them. This is what he's saying. He's saying, let the world, with all of its power, all of its military might, let it come. And all of that is like a drop from a bucket. All of that which is so much greater than us, all of that which could overwhelm us and destroy us, which we cannot fight against on our own, all of that is like a drop from a bucket to the Lord. Or, he says, it's like dust on the scales. Now, you, you know that setting, but just to illustrate it, <clears throat> you know you go to the store and maybe you're going to buy bananas and you put them on a scale, right? And it's going to tell you how much it weighs. It's going to do the math. That's how much you pay. What it weighs, you pays, you know, kind of thing. Well, growing up, I go to the store with my dad, and every gentleman carries his sword, right? So, my dad has his pocket knife. And we get the bananas, and he's going to go weigh them, and he opens his blade, and he begins to whittle on that little part, you know, the connection, there's probably a word for that, but, you know, where the bananas come together, that you're not going to eat, right? Right? So he whittles it down as small as it can, so he puts it on there. I said, Dad, why are you doing that? He said, we're not, we're not going to eat that stuff. I don't want to pay for that stuff. <laughs> we're we're kind of tight, you know, financially. And we'd say, that doesn't even weigh that much. But not even my dad, not even I, have taken bananas to a scale, and they're weighing them, and then said, wait, 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 just a minute. There's a speck of dust on the scale. Let me remove that before you calculate my price. Because you know if we did that, you'd say, you're crazy. It, It doesn't even register. It doesn't even weigh anything. It doesn't mean anything. And God is here saying, all the assembled power of humanity is like that compared to me. All the things you and I fear are like that. We need to see again the greatness of our God. In verse 16, Lebanon. Lebanon is the place proverbial for its great forests. And he says, it won't suffice for fuel. You take all the trees of the greatest forest known to you and you try to make burnt offering with it and that's not big enough for God. It can't match his greatness. So in verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They're nothing and emptiness matched with his greatness. Or over to verse 23. Talking about the Lord uh, spreading out the heavens and he says, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God breathes and empires fold. Empires and powers and rulers come and go and God remains. You may have seen the... Uh, meme that's gone around. There's some uh, graffiti that somebody has spray painted. It says, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. And then underneath somebody's written, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. <laughs> Various folks have come along saying, God's dead, there's no more to him. He still wrote along just fine. And human beings come and go. And somebody has said, God rules the universe. He doesn't have to be reelected. You can't impeach him and he won't resign. He is steady and secure. Behold your God, the absolute sovereign and ruler of nations. But then, the third thing, he, he pauses for this challenge to compare, verses 18 and verse 25. To whom then will you liken God? If all this is true, who will you compare him with? We sang something like this earlier. Who is like God? Now, we know that, but we need to press that into our hearts again. We know that nobody's like God, but we begin to fear the wrong things as if they were like God. We know that no one's like God, but we begin to esteem, honor, and love certain people or things as if they were like God. And he is saying no to all of this. There is no one in his league. And this is a basic statement of faith throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 8.10. In the midst of the plagues, God says he's doing this, that you may know that there is no one like our God. In Exodus 15, 11, in the Song of Moses, after they've come to the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Or in Deuteronomy 32, 31. Indeed, there, the nations, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. Or later, in Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Again and again, these truths are a death blow to our pride, and they underscore the rightness of our praise and celebration of the true God. So behold your God who is beyond all comparison. And then fourth under this, notice the superiority of God over all other would-be gods. Verses 19 to 20 and then verse 26. 19. When he's asked, who will you compare him to? He says, an idol? Like, really? What happens for an idol? A, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and he makes silver chains for it. Chains? Why do you make chains for a god? Basically This. It's very embarrassing if somebody steals your God. It's, it's lots of trouble, um, and it's kind of hard to pray for him when somebody else has him. So you've got to chain him down. But not only might he get stolen, but he might fall over. It's really embarrassing, too, when your God falls over, when he kind of falls on his face. This is the point back in uh, early in the Scriptures with when the ark goes into Philistia, and they put it before Dagon, their idol, their God. And they come in the next morning, and Dagon is on his face before the ark. Ah, oh, embarrassing. Set him up again. And he's down again. Set him up again. And then his head and his hands are cut off. And they say, Doggone, Dagon, what's, what's going on? This is the Lord. He is mocking here. He is saying, Why do you even pay attention to these things? They cannot compare. And he continues. He says, okay, if you're too impoverished, in verse 20, for an offering, then he chooses wood that will not rot because you, know, it's, you really should make your God of gold because he should be valuable. Uh, but if you've got to make him of wood, get a good piece of wood because when your God rots, that's even worse. And then one that will not move. Now, it's easy for us to look and to say, stupid ancient people who would worship idols. But you know, anything you love more than God, that you fear more than God, is your idol. You can ask yourself this question. If everything falls apart, but I still have the appreciation or the favor of this, then everything's okay. That's your God. If everything's going a certain way, I mainly want to make sure I do not offend, that I still am on good terms with Blank, That's your God. Now, he hits another point here. Look down to verse 20. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Verse 25. When he begins to point to, down to verse 26, the stars. And he brings out their hosts by number. In the ancient world, people worship the stars. I recently looked at a study that said 27% of Americans believe in astrology. Not that they think the stars are pretty, but they think the stars govern their lives. Over a quarter of Americans. And the Lord is saying here, why worship what is created instead of the one who created them? The one who guides them and keeps them together. The one who calls them by their name so that none of them are lost. I was talking to a few people about uh, having children before the service this morning. We have six. I can't always call them by name rightly. Some of you that have several, you know what I mean. Jonathan, Matthew, Nathan, whatever your name is, you know who I'm talking about. Come here. And it's not great, but we've lost them a few times. I mean, uh, my fourth son, we left him at church two or three times. He always made it home. But the Lord with the stars that no one can number keeps them all together. This is who he is. Behold your God, the only true God, the Lord of all lords, he is the one. He is the one at this first point that is God beyond all compare. There is nothing that you or I will ever face that he does not understand, that he cannot deal with. There are all kinds of things that we can't handle, but there is nothing that he can't handle. He is awesome in power. He is awesome in glory. He is awesome in knowledge. He is God. And we need to look to him when we look to him, we can have another question, and we know it's not orthodox, but that doesn't keep us from asking it, particularly when things are hard. That's the second question I mentioned at the beginning. Okay, God is all that, but is he really interested in me? God can move mountains, but is he interested in me? And that's where Isaiah moves. What I will label God for us. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, after all of this run, he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, the people of God, people of God, why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? What are they saying? Okay, he's powerful, but he can't see me. My right's has been disregarded. I am owed some things and he doesn't see it. I- I'm being oppressed. What's, what's being done to me isn't right. And he doesn't see. Does he not care? And he says, Why do you talk like that? Now the Lord should ask us that. You and I know why we talk like that. Sometimes because we're stuck on ourselves and we think we're more important than we are, sometimes because we're hurting. And we really do wonder, where's justice in the world? And there again he says, have you not known, have you not heard? You should remember these things. The Lord is the everlasting Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He doesn't faint, he doesn't get uh, weary. It's not as if he was dealing with the issues for this side of the church this week and these folks had some issues. And so he was so occupied with them, I'm sorry I couldn't get to you this week. No. His understanding is unsearchable, so it's not that he doesn't know the answer, but his understanding is unsearchable, meaning you and I will not always understand the ways of God. You can hope to and you can ask to, but you can never demand to because you don't have the capacity It's just like when we tell our children, you need to do this, and we know sometimes you can't understand it. That's why in my household, we told them, you don't get to ask why. You can't say why. Now, you can begin to obey and in your obeying, ask for understanding. That's fine. But you can't just say why without moving because some of the whys you can't understand. You're just going to have to trust me. That's where the Lord is. And so he comes to that great crescendo. In verse 29, he gives power to the faint. If you are faint this morning, if you feel your weariness, if you really wonder, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can keep going on. This God, this great, grand, glorious God that we just described gives power to the faint. And he gives power to him who has no might For that person, he increases strength. This is why we had to look away from ourselves. There are not the resources inside us, but there is abundant resources in God. God is our only hope, but he is abundant hope. God is our only help, but he is all sufficient help. It was Augustine who said, I am insufficient, but my father liveth forever, and my defender is sufficient for me. This is the hope which has sustained the great saints through the ages. This is why Abraham, when God says to him, you know your son, your only son, your beloved son. Check out the text, how God points that out. Take him and sacrifice him. Abraham obeys. It's supposed to be an amazing example to us of faith because it doesn't make sense. God's supposed to do great things to this child, but he obeys. And why does he obey? Romans tells us, Because with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, God was able to perform. He persevered in the faith because he trusted God. There's nothing there about trusting himself. Oftentimes, we must have trust in self crushed so that trust in God can emerge. This is why Paul will also say, if this God be for us, who can be against us? Daniel, eleven thirty-two, one of my favorite verses: Those who know their God will stand firm and take action. That's what we see in the stories in Daniel. what we see. Four hundred fifty-seven, I think, is the number years ago today. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, two great preachers of the time, are burned at the stake their faith in god one of them had wavered before they're asked to deny the faith essentially and they say no and so they go to the go to the fire with one saying to the other play the man and today we will light in england a light for the gospel which will never go out why were they able to say something like that because they knew that god gives strength to the weak this is why Psalm 89 says, Blessed are the people who exalt in your name all day. The people who exalt in God, these are the ones who remember the greatness of God and therefore can stand in difficult times. This is why David goes to fight Goliath. There's nothing there, despite some bad sermons on the text, there's nothing there that says, David said, yeah, I can do it. Little people can do big things too. Look at me. You don't know what I've done. Notice when he goes, he says, You have blasphemed my God. And my God this day will give the glory. In David's mind, God was so big he couldn't fear the giant. In the Israelites' minds, the giant was so big they couldn't see God. This view of the greatness of God is what sustains us. It's what empowers us. It's what leads to boldness. It's what leads to faithfulness. It's what leads to that living the life before the Lord that the world may not see but brings great glory to God and advances his kingdom and which will on the final day receive the great blessing of God. My family and I lived for three years in Scotland, 30 years ago or something like that, not 20 years ago. My older children were quite young at that time and we lived in what they called a semi-detached house. I didn't know what part wasn't attached, but that's essentially a duplex. And you would step in, and there were the stairs that went up to three bedrooms. It's a little place. And then there's a door. You need a door because it's Scotland, and it's windy and cold. And the living room is here. So we spent most of our time here. My second son, who's now well into his 20s, was about two or three, four, something like that. We're there. We're talking about something. Some toy or something that has come up in the conversation is upstairs, and he would like to go get it. But it's colder out there, and the lights are completely off in the stairwell and up the stairs. But he just begins to go and up the stairs. And I'm thinking, I don't want him to be scared. There's no need. He doesn't have to do that. I don't want him to think I'm telling him to go upstairs. So I said, hey, Matthew, buddy, you don't have to go get that. I know it's dark. And out there, and I hear a little voice come back to the door saying, it okay, Daddy. God be with me. And I thought, yes. Yes, Lord, that's the truth. Help me to live in that way and help him, though he's young right now, take that truth deep into his heart that he might live all his days saying whatever obedience looks like, it's okay. God will be with me. Let me ask you to bow your heads to consider God's word this morning. We're going to sing as you regularly do. It will be an opportunity to respond. Singing may be the way you need to respond. You may need to pray. You may want to come and pray with someone. But it's also possible that you're hearing this and you recognize you've never trusted this God. This God is great. But if you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, this God is your judge right now, and you cannot avoid him. But the judge has promised that all those who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. Even today, you can repent of your sins and trust him, and this great God will redeem you, and no one will ever be able to take you from his hand. Whatever we need to do, let's do business with God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the great God. And thank you that despite our sinfulness, our sluggishness, and how slow we are to learn, thank you that you persevere with us. Thank you for making a way for our sins to be forgiven through the Lord Jesus. Help us to rest in you and trust you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.